Hey, what's up, everybody? My name's MJ, and you're listening to the MTG in Quarantine podcast. As usual, I'd like to give a quick shout-out to my local game store, Guardian Games. You can find Guardian Games on the web at ggportland.com. On today's episode, we're returning to the Control Room series, where I bring my longtime friend Ryan onto the show to talk all things Magic the Gathering. So, without further ado, I'd like to reintroduce Ryan to the show. Hey, how's it going? Hey, it's it's a me again. <laughs> I'm back. For yep. More punishment. <laughs> yep, more punishment. Okay. More punishment. <laughs> back. I'm back. <laughs> I'd like to think it's not that bad, but what? Whatever. I'm back for another slog. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on today's episode. We've decided to take a break from the Uncommon Cards the Pack a Punch series that we've done the last few weeks, and we've decided to look at a past from Ryan, or a set from Ryan's past, excuse me. And that that set is not actually just a specific set, it's actually an entire block. So we're going to spend today talking about the Lorwyn Shadowmoor block. And... Obviously, this was definitely something from your past, Ryan, so I'm going to have to rely on you, because you were playing the game at this point, and I definitely was not. So we're going to just follow your lead on this stuff. Feel free to bring up whatever you want, and we'll have a good discussion, all right? Yep. <clears throat> all right, so the Lorwyn Shadowmoor block, as you described to me, was a very interesting set. For those who are not quite familiar with it, Lorwyn uh, Shadowmoor, the block itself came out in 2007-2008 as a series of four sets, uh, effectively based upon the the plane of Lorwyn, which I believe it was the first and only time we've been to Lorwyn. Is that correct? Yeah. And I was not only known for bringing up a lot of tribal synergies, such as fairies, kithkin, and uh, elementals, tree folk, but also being one of the first instances, if not the first instances, of planeswalkers, in a Magic the Gathering set. So, again, this is this is where we ended up with our first version of Jace Beleren, Liliana Vess, and Garrick the Wild Speaker, I believe. Again, I I wasn't playing in these days, so you're going to have to... Uh, yeah, Garrick Wild Speaker, we're, we're in this set. And, again, these are cards that now we may not really look at twice, because they may not have some of the same power that Planeswalkers do today, but at the time, I'm sure these were very disruptive because they were introducing a new mechanic or really trying to uh, push a new mechanic, that being a Planeswalker, being a card type, into the mainstream Magic the Gathering. So, Ryan, uh, again, since you were playing back in those days, what do you remember most about the Lorwyn Shadowmoor block as a player? Uh, well, that was really like the first uh, the first block that I got into kind of as an enfranchised Magic player. Like, I'd, I'd, I'd played... Uh, with other kinds of uh, cards from other kinds of sets before that, but that was the first time I really uh, engaged in a, like a pre-release event, and it was the first time I actually uh, um, <clears throat> like um, delved deep into the game. So prior to that, it, things were a little more haphazard. Um, I think that as a result of it being the really the first time I uh, delved deep into mechanics of a set, I think it. Um, you know, I think it, it's an example of a set that kind of sticks to me, um, as in, you know, sets that usually, um, people think of as their first introductory, you know, sets to the games, um, it, it tends to stick with people as well. Um, 
uh, like for example, your the set that introduced you to the game was uh, War of the Spark. Um, That's correct. I imagine I imagine that that one kind of sticks to you a little bit differently than the the things that followed, probably. It definitely um, does, but I, again, I think it's on for as far as that is concerned. I think that's on a different level because ultimately everything was kind of building towards War of the Spark. You know, as far as the cards, the set, the story, everything was really building towards that zenith point. Where I think with Lorwyn, for you especially, is that you you didn't necessarily have to worry about all that baggage while you were also trying to learn the game. You had some familiarity with the game, obviously. This is your first real foray into the game beyond just the most cursory, the most basic level. So obviously this is the part where you really started to understand, you know, here's how the game works. Here's, you know, you start to understand the card evaluations, etc., etc. And it seems to me, at least uh, where I sit here, that this was definitely one of those kinds of sets that people remember. Maybe they weren't necessarily like, they, they didn't necessarily like the block or the sets, but it certainly seems to me that a lot of people played during these time periods and have at least some memories of the sets. I'm not going to say if they're good or if they're bad, but people remember, seem to remember the Lorwyn block. Yeah, a lot of people do. I think it's overlooked in people who started playing the game after Lorwyn, particularly the people who kind of started playing the game. I'd say probably like uh, Innistrad and after, sort of in the 2010s. That's kind of definitely not something that's on people's radar to the same extent as people who started playing, you know, prior to the 2010s, where, you know, a lot of those sets, um, things like Kamigawa, Lorwyn, um, you know, Future Sight, um, those kind of things are a little more notable in people's minds um <clears throat> i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the um the game grew a lot from the period and right around you know like the introduction of innistrad all the way until today like it was a much smaller player audience during the time in which these sets came out so there's that factor and i guess the other factor is also that uh, these sets still had a little bit of jankiness to them. I I, I think that they're a, a little bit um, represented kind of like a crisis of, of conscience, sort of between some of the missteps of Kamigawa and like the the uh, commercial success wise of of Time Spiral. That Lorwyn also was a little bit of a of a letdown, I think, for some people, which is why it's not you know like rated anywhere near the top of you know people's lists of of settings that they want the game to return to uh there's not a whole lot of people that are out there saying we need to have a return to Lorwyn set <laughs> you know that i have it. heard a little to be fair i have <clears throat> heard a little bit about that where people would like a potential return there because again this set did have a lot of very popular tribes in it mostly fairies and obviously they were very disruptive from what i heard about the in the competitive scene Maybe not so much now, but at the time, I do believe that was one of those big-time yeah. tribes that seemed to get a ton of support with each set. So maybe um, beyond that, there it, let's just say maybe it wasn't the deepest block. It had some yeah. very good highlights. Because, again, when when you look at the some of the highlights of the set, there's a lot of cards that we use in EDH, honestly. You have Rings of Bright Hearth. Uh, that's the one where the artifact where you can... Uh, copy and activate ability for paying two. 
You have something like uh, something like Colfiner's Urn, a Dolmen Gate, which prevents all combat damage to be dealt to attacking creatures you control. You have a whole. You have all the hideaway lands, and again, this is the cycle of lands that uh, allowed you to exile a card on a land, and then you could play the exiled card without paying its mana cost if you hit the exact requirements that are listed on the card. You end up with the Vivid Lands, uh, a whole bunch of Tribal Synergy Dual Lands. You ended up with Door in the Siege Tower, Gaddock Teague, Sig River <coughs> Guide is some of the legendary creatures out of that set. And obviously you ended up with the Command series, which does include the extremely cryptic Cryptic Command. Yeah, and that's just and out I of Lorwyn that, itself. Yeah, I think that Lorwyn, uh, Lorwyn you know, Morningtide is remembered... To a greater extent than the Shadow Moor Eventide sort of half of the set, and I think a lot of that has to do with the prominence of some cards from uh, Morning Tide, Lorwyn, and and in terms of um, EDH, there is a lot of tribal cards because those were tribal themed sets that are used in tribal EDH decks pretty widely. Like some of the key Merfolk cards, uh, like well-known goblin cards of different colors um you've got uh elementals there if you happen to play an elemental deck um and also tree folk uh this was like the first set um where tree folk had like a more prominent role and weren't side pieces and kind of made tree folk i guess i i'm saying it didn't really add a ton of tribal support but at least had tribal pieces built around tree folk as an identity um, I think the, the the tree folk was a little bit scattered in that they were three colors, you know, Obzon identity, which was a little odd, rather than like you know focusing on green or green black, you know, um, things were a little odd there. But at least it gave cards for that tribe that worked with other tree folk, you know, which prior to that set didn't really exist. But these tribal cards and tribal tribal enabling cards are kind of why people have cards from uh, Lorwyn and Shadowmoor in in that archetype of deck pretty frequently. But when you look at Eventide and you look at Shadowmoor, that was not a tribal themed um, sort of, I guess you call it block kind of mini block or whatnot. Um, instead, it revolved around like. Um, color identity mechanics and hybrid mana and and some of the other really interesting keywords that they introduced to deal with that and you know negative one negative one counters and stuff and um, negative one negative one counters have kind of become a bigger thing lately like um, it, they kind of returned to that in um, goodness it was uh, Amonkhet oh, yeah Amonkhet um, and th it was a minor theme in Amonkhet which is kind of cool because you know they'd never returned a negative one negative one counters until then um it kind of <laughs> went went under the radar so to speak in terms had some of negative mechanics. one negative one counter <clears throat> synergies in the mirrodin block too right with the infect. yeah and there were some older i mean shadow more and eventide didn't actually introduce the concept of negative one negative one counters i i believe that they actually pre um pre-existed to a certain extent um actually i'm looking over here and it looks like it it uh, debuted in uh, uh, Arabian Nights. Oh, wow. Uh, that does go the back. The card, yeah, a long time ago. Second set in Magic the Gathering on the card Unstable Mutation. So, 
you know, Uncivil Mutation is a card that gives a buff to a creature and then it gains negative one, negative one counters until the creature basically either dies or whatnot. So that was the first negative one, negative one counter card. But it was the first set that actually dealt with negative one, negative one counters and had two different abilities uh, that actually kind of uh, utilized that. You had Persist and you had Wither, both of them using negative one, negative one counters to, in the case of Persist, working with creatures that came back to life and gaining a negative one, negative one counter. And then the form of Wither, you had kind of like the prototypical like infect mechanic kind of it, it, you can think of it as having the negative one negative one counters of infect but not the poison counters um mm -hmm. and we haven't seen wither again uh, since then but we did see it effectively uh wither applied to the you know the mechanics from scars of mirrodin um where you saw infect um I don't think any of these like abilities and the overall theme of Eventide and Shadow Moor, I don't think that they, um, uh, a lot of them were not long lasting. You have abilities like Chroma, um, you got Retrace, neither of those two you ever saw again, except Chroma was notably reworked into uh, uh, Devotion. It was the, the prototype for Devotion. Um, uh, Devotion being essentially a, a fixed or a better Chroma. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, retrace, um, retrace was, was kind of interesting. You see, a, I think, have there been a couple of other retrace cards? Retrace oh, is Modern the one. Horizon. Yeah. Yeah. They did. Re retrace is the one where you pay the cost and then you discard a land <clears throat> card to activate a yeah. card from a graveyard, right? Yeah. It uh, allows you to cast it if you yeah. discard a card. Um, yeah. Yeah. However, it's so yeah. things like worm harvest, which see a lot of play have this. Um, but conspire though, I, I, I'm trying to remember if no, yeah, no, that's never seen re, a re, reprint, um, conspire cards. Um, okay, how about a couple persist more? Yeah, yeah, persist became the uh, undying was the prototype for undying, which I think undying actually works a little bit better, and that it revolves around plus one plus one counters instead of negative one negative one counters. Um, sure. So like you can see like where these different themes, these different mechanics where they didn't really work super well. Uh, they kind of didn't quite make it, but they were used as the basis for much more successful mechanics later on in the, in the coming decade. Yeah, so another couple ones that I wanted to talk about here was one, the untap symbol. Could you explain to people what the, the untap ability was? So I think it's probably the most confusing and the most innovative of all of the... Um, of the cards introduced in the Shadowmore Eventide block, um, because it introduced a new symbol uh, on the card, and unlike just you know energy counters or whatever, it's it, it's actually kind of a difficult concept to wrap your mind around, and has some pretty weird interactions. Um, untap is a reversed, like both a color reverse symbol and and a direction reversed tap symbol, that signifies that you meet some condition or pay some amount of mana or whatnot, and it allows you to untap a card. Now, there were cards that allowed you to untap things before untap existed, and they've stopped using that symbol after Shadowmore. Now they just spell out untap this thing um, or do this, and then this thing untaps. You know, they, uh, Part of it, and from what I've, what I've read, is that Wizards of the Coast um, received feedback that Un the untap and the untap symbol were really confusing to people because it looks like a tap symbol and 
also that it was kind of difficult for people to wrap their head around it. Um, basically, you know, uh, a card that allows you to tap a creature for something later on or attack with a creature and then allows you to then, when it's untapped uh, or when it's tapped, allows you to untap it for an effect is kind of kind of counterintuitive and kind of has a weird flow to it considering that you know the average way that most people would utilize that is that it would be a second main phase kind of um, ability after you've already tagged with something there's not a whole lot that occurs in the second main phase that like it is primarily you'd want to utilize it uh, there's not a whole lot of aspects to the game that focus on the second main phase i don't know um, man there there are i mean obviously that goes into play <clears throat> patterns if you're going to use the second main phase but yes trying to find a way to be able to tap your creatures without having some sort of tap ability is certainly more difficult than just having a tap ability because all of a sudden now you have to unless you attack you have to use something like springleaf drum which also was in lorwyn but you have to use something like that to be able to get mana well all of a sudden now you're jumping through a whole bunch of hoops and then when you untap a card the effect may not necessarily be worth it although you know, for instance, there is a card, King Makar, for instance, out of Theros, I believe, yeah. has a similar effect. And obviously, that was where I believe uh, it, it, it wasn't heroic. It was the other one out of out of Theros block that had something similar. Uh, every time a creature untapped, you'd get an effect. So, so I suppose that the untap yeah. symbol here again would be, I guess, a prototype for that specific mechanic, um, which had. And inspired. That's what it was. Yeah, for, for the inspired mechanic. Yeah, and then you had that other card. Uh, I can't remember if it was like Twilight Mantle or whatever. The the cloak thing. Uh, that had a, a, the cloak artifact that had its untap ability that lets you... Um, um, that you can abuse pretty readily with creatures that um, have tap abilities that are ridiculous in and of themselves. So uh, I think that untap as a effectively you can think of it like a conditional tap ability wasn't super popular because can you imagine like if they made a bunch of conditional tap abilities i don't know if that would be super popular among people either um people like tapping to get an effect out of something they don't like having to have an effect to order the tap something <laughs> you know what i mean that's fair um, that's fair it's kind of a reversal of the expected order. So maybe it was too innovative for the time and then it kind of changed the game rule, kind of. But a lot of later cards they printed interact really well, like King Makar, like you pointed out, with, with the untap abilities, um, along with a lot of different commanders that, that, can, that you want to tap for different effects. Um, kind of plays well with those. It is one of the most eye, you know, like eye-opening things, though, because there's not very many times that Wizards of the Coast has actually produced new text box symbols, um, and it's it is pretty notable that this was produced for a one-off, you know, like set of abilities, <laughs> and it's never been seen again. I guess kind of like energy counters, you know, energy counters been... or uh, those acorn <laughs> counters out of the unset with Acornalia, oh. which, which also had a text box yeah. edition. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> the other one I wanted to bring up, and I know it wasn't from all from Lorwyn, but it's from this block, and that is Clash. And for those of you who don't know what Clash is, you're probably not alone. 
took me a little bit to understand it as well. And basically what Clash is, is you play a card, play some sort of spell, and then you can clash with an opponent. You and target opponent reveal the top card of your library. The person who has the highest CMC or mana value these days on the card that you have revealed wins the clash. Therefore, if you play the card, then you win a clash then you get some sort of effect, whether that's returning the card to your hand or there's some additional effect. And I actually really like this idea in EDH. Again, it's a little overcosted, but I do play a couple of Clash cards in my Selenia Dark Angel deck. And Ryan, I know you're very familiar with that one from our local play <laughs> yeah. group. But effectively, I really enjoy the Clash cards because one, they provide you with a very high ceiling because again, if you, if you just get really lucky on the Clash, on, uh, on the Clash portion of the cards, you're all of a sudden able to maybe copy a spell once, twice, maybe even three times. And second of all, because they bring in a lot of variance to the game. And again, I've, I've definitely been on this podcast before saying I really enjoy the variance in the Commander format. And these cards, while they don't necessarily give you guaranteed value, I think the concept of, of the mini-game, I suppose, within the game is something that I really <laughs> enjoy as a player. So... For instance, I do play the card Hoarder's Greed in that deck. It's a sorcery for three and a black, and it reads draw two cards and lose two life, then you clash with an opponent. So with the idea being that I can potentially draw four, six, maybe even eight cards off of four mana if I get lucky with my clash. So the concept is really good, I think, in principle. You're not always going to win the clash, but I just personally like the mechanic because it opens up an opportunity to copy spells just by playing some strange little mini game without having to, you know, obviously nowadays you can just copy spells straight up. But in a deck where I don't have the ability or I didn't have the ability to be able to copy spells, you know, saying like with blue or red, um, it, it offers me a chance to try to be able to get a whole bunch of card draw just by getting lucky on the top of my deck. Yeah, I think Clash is a very interesting mechanic. I think it, along with Conspire, which is, of course, from um, Shadowmore, I think that if you ask the average person what, you know, like, what Clash was, a lot of people wouldn't actually know what that what that ability did or what it was. Because uh, it sounds like a lot of other abilities, but it does something that's kind of different. Um, there, I, I, I can't think of another ability like it that, that at least that's a keyworded ability that does anything similar to it. Um, I guess if you think about it, like Cascade is kind of like it, and then it's also based around CMC. And but it does things. require an opponent to have input yeah. on the on the whole thing, and that I think that kind of mucks up the concept in a way. Yeah, and 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 the difference is something like, um, you know, like Cascade works just like it's one side. You just pull right from your library, right? But Clash is a little different than it's. You could think of it like a micro game or a sub game within Magic. It's also really it's bizarre. Like flipping stride a coin, too. kind of. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's kind of like flipping a coin, sort of. Except it's kind of it's more complicated than coin flipping. It's actually more like an actual game. You're effectively like playing the card game War, and that's what it is. It's the card game War within a game of Magic. You're like, mm -hmm. okay, uh, it's whichever card is the biggest wins and then uh, if that doesn't happen then you pull the other card from it and then you see if that one wins you know like uh 
there's not a lot of abilities out there that make you do magic sub games. I'm thinking of like Sharazad. I'm thinking about a couple <laughs> other. A uh, Goblin game is another goblin example game. of one that makes you. Goblin game is pr- also a sub game card. I love sub game cards, but I do think I I'm not as big a fan of Clash because I think it more often than not I feel like they tacked. It could have been good if they made a lot of really unique cards interacted with it, but I think they. What they did is they made a bunch of cycles of cards and just tacked Clash onto them. Sure, like, sure, sure. Like generic like cards. Like, do three damage to an opponent, then Clash. Uh, if you win, put it back to your hand. Sure. It's but, like, uh, in, in, it's in, not in, terribly interesting. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah but, but again, in the case of Hoarder's Greed, I really don't lose a whole hell of a lot. Yes, I could play Read the Bones. I am playing <clears> that in that deck. So, I mean, it's covering my base there by providing me a read the bones type effect and if nothing else i will at least be able to scry one so if i don't like the card that's on top of my deck i can dump it to the bottom and all of a sudden i've moved three cards off my deck so i i see in that specific case that there is a lot of upside there and if i can somehow draw four cards off of that four mana well now you're talking about really good value so yeah it really depends on what your deck is trying to do yeah, it's it's just a weird one um, because it, uh, you know, it, it, um, I think it it worked in in ways that was, you know, that were kind of unconventional, and I think that was that was part of why it kind of flopped is that, um, you know, I guess people didn't kind of realize some of the advantages to the whole clash mechanic and that like you know it said it's kind of like scry a little bit and then with an upside kind of attached to it as well um i think part of it being a random kind of thing kind of hurt it whereas you know something with cascade is seen as like universally like almost always a, an um an upside you know clash is a little bit more variable than that you're you know it's antagonistic with your opponent um so it kind of feels different and i think um I don't feel like it was supported well enough in in Morning Tide um, or Lorwyn. I don't I don't feel like there were any there weren't really any cards that interacted with Clash or like that made it possible to construct like a Clash deck or anything. I think that they part of it was that there's such a tribal theme in the in the game that um, you know Clash wasn't a tribal keyword and it really would require other kinds of cards. It's almost if you think about it, it would be something that that would work well in like a spell slingy kind of deck uh, if you had cards that could interact with it, but you, you, those cards just don't really exist. Whereas, you know, look at something like Cascade, there are cards that interact with the, with Cascade. Um, you know, like they, they've been printing cards that interact with Cascade, you know, as, as recently as um, uh, Commander Legends. Mm-hmm. Clash, you just haven't seen that, that interest in it. Um, I... I think it, it is pretty cool though. But I, I think it was executed pretty poorly, in, in my opinion. Sure, sure. Because uh, again, I'm going to keep saying this. It requires several variables to go right to be able to get that second effect. So th- while this is something that I like playing in EDH because it's a little funky, but also has high ceiling, it also has a very low floor in a lot of cases. As I found out when we were playing last night, actually. Uh, so the night before we were recording this episode. I did play Hoarder's Greed, and I got a land off the top of my deck, so I lost the Clash, and, you know, that, that's just what happens. But, yeah, in other formats, I probably wouldn't play that because I need the guaranteed card draw. Yeah. Um, 
like I think I mentioned Conspire earlier. That's another one that was a little odd um, that lets you gain extra value out of a spell. Um, you know, in this case, allowing you to tap creatures of that shared a color in order to copy a spell, you know, um, letting you, you know, play it. I think um, there, uh, there were a couple of those sort of, um, you know, um, abilities that I think that I felt, I feel like they were tacked on to pre-existing cards for added value. And I think that some of the best, like, keywords that they've introduced to the game have been keywords that that can be interacted with by other cards and that aren't just value added keywords that they they put on to like a sorcerer instant you know what i mean mm-hmm. all right so moving on we probably should move on to morning tide since we've been talking about it so much so this was released in 2008 but only had 150 cards in it so again, we were talking about this set specifically yesterday, and effectively, it's not a full set. It kind of hits along a lot of the same themes as Lorwyn did. We have a lot of changelings, a lot of fairy tribal, a lot of rogue tribal was brought up, including the prowl mechanic for the first time, which was something that we've actually seen return with the rogues in the Zendikar Rising rogue tribal deck and you'll find a lot of these cards in this uh from that deck actually came from morning tide specifically so we're seeing a small return of those mechanics as well as a lot of the changelings that have shown up in call time after basically being dormant for a long time as well so yeah this is definitely a set that was based mostly around tribes even more so i think than lorwyn because you also had mutavolt from this set, and for those who know, Mutavolt is a land, taps for one generic, but also if you pay one, Mutavolt becomes a 2-2 creature with all creature types until end of turn, and it's still a land. So Morning Tide effectively is basically <coughs> tribal the set years before Call Time ever came out. Yeah. I I think uh, there was definitely some stuff there that was, that was ahead of its time. I think uh, you mentioned it being a smaller than average set as well. You'll, if you look at Eventide, that's also like 180 cards. So, you know, like had, they had a mega, uh, you know, like a primary set, and then they had a mini set for both of those. And then both of those blocks together comprised like a mega block formation, which again is, is never that style of, of releasing a, uh, a, a block was never seen again. <laughs> like that was Wizards of the Coast's experiment with some pretty unconventional, um, you know, release um, strategies. Um, if anything, I think it, it made things a little more confusing. Uh, when when I think back to Morning Tide, I I think about um, stuff like Clash. I think about cards like um, about the Goblin cards. You know, I think also about um, you know, uh, some of the elf cards that they introduced in Morning Tide that are pretty commonly played. Um, I liked. Um, I, well, I had a friend that played a lot of cards from from Morning Tide in a couple of his decks as well. Um, I like. Uh, I think there was also some stuff in there that was a little. Um, that was a little bit ahead of its time. I think that um, the Prowl mechanic mm-hmm. um i i like that if you if you look at um 
what it does, it says you may cast it for its prowl cost if you deal combat damage to a player this turn with like uh, with a certain tribal creature or subtype. Um, I think it, it's kind of interesting as, as a tribal enab enabler, and um, you saw you see some of that stuff sort of return in the game, like with you know some of the ninja style you know play strategies where like mm -hmm. you know if something hits something then something else happens you know the, the ninjutsu mechanic. yeah uh, except not with like the creature substitution you know like this is a case of like the roguey kind of um play strategy like where hey sneak underneath something and then hit it and then you get something out of it um you get an alternative casting cost instead of whatever would normally be on the card yeah in this case, you get an alternative casting cost, which which is also kind of unusual if you think well, about it. And an additional know. effect, I suppose, too. Yeah, yeah, and and that that kind of idea has been explored a lot. And recently, rogues as a tribe have gotten kind of a boost, um, whereas you know before that wasn't as big of a thing. And I think that prowl, you don't see prowl as a keyword as much, but I think that you um, you prowl like abilities that you see, especially you know with like some of the, the stuff they introduced in Commander Legends and Zendikar Rising and stuff like that, with that focused around rogues um, doing roguey things. I, I think this was kind of like a foreshadowing to that, as well like that, you know the rogue subtype existed before Lorwyn, but that was another tribe that kind of became a thing. Um, Morning Tide, I mean, specifically, as a, as a class-based tribe. Um, you see that in, in a couple different cards here that kind of work with other rogues. Um, I, I, it's also interesting to note that um, uh, this was also, or the Lorwyn block was the first time we ever saw uh, Planeswalkers introduced into the game. Um, which was also something uh, that was a little oddly timed with the block. Um, I still think they feel kind of like an add-on, you know, stuck to it. They don't really relate to the Lorwyn Shadowmoor story at all, the Planeswalkers. They don't feature in any of the cards in it. They were very obviously just tacked into it. Um, and that's because they intended to have the Planeswalkers actually present in, in, um, in Time Spiral, where they would have fit in better because you know the time spiral store was all about you know the actions of different planeswalkers and stuff and closing time rifts and things like that and i think they would have fit into that a lot better but instead they got dumped into lorwyn where they i don't think they really had anything to do with that you know that overall thingamajig um so those are the things i kind of think about when i when i think about lorwyn or or morning tide um, I know that you like you like your clash cards. I have a couple of those poking out as well, and in, in my long box. But um, I kind of stopped using them at a certain point because I, I was I was like, eh, I, I've got better versions of those cards, you know. And I, and I felt like it was kind of um, inconsistent, you know, getting getting a card back from that. Sure, sure. So moving on to Shadowmore, actually. Um, there, yeah, again, you did mention this. There was a lot of hybrid mana that came out of this set. 
if you just want, if you look at the stuff on Scryfall, you end up seeing a lot of hybrid mana, actually. And I, while this wasn't the first time we had hybrid mana in the game, obviously that was a Ravnica, original Ravnica thing that really started bringing the two-color pairings in. The fact that there were so many split dual mana cards, I think definitely demonstrated a shift in how the game could be played, that all of a sudden you could play a card, it would have some abilities that the, that color may not normally have access to, but it really played along the two color pairings a lot. So it, it, I think it opened up a lot of the interesting design space for Wizards as they started to go forward from this point on. Yeah, it, this is, you know, hybrid mana was technically introduced in uh, Ravnica, but I'll say that Ravnica didn't do a whole lot with hybrid mana in terms of really like pushing the boundary of it. Uh, I still think that the boundaries of hybrid mana haven't really been pushed. And I still think, you know, in my opinion, I don't think hybrid mana is, is utilized as often as I think it really could be. Instead, I think they use a lot of gold border stuff in, in place of it. But I, I think I like the hybrid mana in that it represents like an either or proposition where, you know, uh, gold border or multicolor kind of represents a, you know, an and proposition. I, I like its flexibility while at the same time, the fact that it tends to dictate color composition of a deck. So it has limitations it puts on things, but also has flexibility compared to um, multicolored um, spells and permanents. Um, I like that they expanded uh, hybrid mana all up and down the color pie and that they um put a lot of investment into exploring what what hybrid you know instants and sorceries would do if you took and you combined the aspects of two different colors um together and instead of just doing what they what they'd done in the past with multicolored spells where they just kind of slap two um two effects from the different colors together and then have them do both they instead kind of added an either or kind of uh strategy to to it um, which I thought was just fascinating, where um, it the the spell has different effects depending upon which color colors or colors you've used to to pay for the spell. So um, uh, let's see here. I think it was um, trying to remember. Oh, hybrid modal spells. There we go. Um, this one's these are the really interesting ones. You have cards like River's Grasp. Um, where it states, if blue was spent to play River's Grasp, return up to one target creature to its owner's hand. If black was spent to play River's Grasp, target player reveals his or her hand, and you choose a non-land card from it, and then the player you know, discards that card. And then it has in little uh, reminder text at the bottom, it says, do both if both um, blue and black was spent. So it kind of allows you to play it with either or, but... If you do play with, or you do pay for it with both colors of, of mana, it gives you both. So it's it's kind of um, that's kind of really cool. Um, if if you're so if you have those two colors available, you get a little bonus out of it. Um, and and obviously they also um, printed the card Fire Spout, which I think was the best out of that cycle. Uh, I don't know that many people who play Torrent of Souls for example, but Fire Spout is pretty good in terms of its efficiency. 
Um, they kind of did the same thing, I believe, with creatures. I don't, um, I can't find them at the moment, but basically, um, they had uh, hybrid mana was all over the place in Shadowmoor and Eventide. Um, maybe a little bit too much <laughs> hybrid mana. Like everything had hybrid mana in it, pretty much, it felt like. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> like. <laughs> All of the lieges, the demigods, like, uh, it had modal spells, hybrid filter lands, like, uh, conspire spells that were hybrid, hybrid creatures of different types. Probably, like, 40 different things probably had hybrid mana in it, which is maybe a little bit much, but... And then I think it reached its apex with, um, with Reaper King, you know, where he's got that absolutely, like insane hybrid mana cost printed on mm-hmm. his uh on his text box where it's like you can pay up to uh 10 uh yeah up to 10 generic mana or pay one of each color you know and the star the old wooberg starburst you know or any combination thereof which is just i think it's like the penultimate example of of how of where you can push it hybrid mana and they just haven't really returned to that um as much, you know, the hybrid casting cost spells, I really like. I like that, like, you know, they reward you for, for example, playing monocolor decks. It's easier to cast, um, uh, like, uh, um, Beseech the Queen if you're playing mono black than if you're playing three color or even two color. And it damn near have to pay its maximal cost if you're playing a five color deck, but. You know, if you're playing mono black, it's three black, so that makes it mm-hmm. a really good tutor. Um, Flame Javelin, I think it was a lot better at the time that card came out. That was actually regarded as a really good freaking card in a mono red deck, but um, you know, I think the power level of the game has crept up a little bit since then in terms of damage output. That's an understatement, I think. Yeah, four man, four damage for for three red is is not so great anymore, considering they they reprinted. Um, lightning bolt and M10, and also that you've got way more powerful damage dealing cards these days um, than that. But uh, it was good at the time in standard and and then extended and stuff like that. Um, the other cards are kind of forgettable, except for Spectral Pro- Procession. Actually, come think of it, that card's pretty good. Um, there were a lot of really cool things that I liked that I liked from that set. Um, like I, I liked the tribes that they had. I liked the color identities that they had for each of the tribes. Um, I liked the fact that the flavor of uh, Shadowmoor Eventide a lot more than I liked the flavor of um, Morningtide um, Lorwyn. Um, and I thought there were a lot of cards that also like pushed the boundaries a lot. Um, some really great cycles of cards here. The Reflections cycle, you know, where you've got Boon Reflection, Thought Reflection, Wound Reflection, Rage Reflection, Mana Reflection. Um, those are all absolutely glorious. Um, rage Reflection, maybe a bit less um, glorious. Same thing with Thought Reflection. I think Thought Reflection, just because of how much that spell costs... I mean, if you're going to pay five, six, seven mana for an enchantment, it better, like, damn near, like, destroy your opponents. And if all it's doing is, if you draw a card, draw two cards, then um, 
it's that's not the craziest effect. Whereas, you know, with Boon Reflection, it doubles your life gain. Wound Reflection, it doubles your damage output. You know, uh, I think those are a lot more, like, play this and you may end up winning <laughs> kind of mm -hmm. abilities. Same thing with Mana Reflection, which is kind of redonkulous as well. And, you know, Rage Reflection, it just says creatures you control have Double Strike, which I guess is okay, but I think it would have been better if it, like, it doubled actually just doubled the damage that each creature that you had dealt because I think it would synergize with more things I feel like um, because then it would synergize with double strike um, as opposed to just being double strike and you know at six mana it's kind of expensive just to do one thing um, but there were just some really great cycles in there um, Anyways, that, that, those are kind of things I remember from Shadowmoor. Um, it was really fun to play in the pre-release for that because it, there was a lot of stuff that I'd never seen before in the game. Um, some stuff that kind of forgettable, but also some stuff that I think uh, was ahead of its time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so looking... Plus, uh, yeah. it also introduced Scarecrows into the game. Gotcha. Which are uh, <laughs> kind of a perennial favorite. Yeah, so, so looking back at this block, I'm really struck by the fact that it seems quite homogenous in some ways and not so homogenous in other ways. You end up getting a lot of the same creature types over and over again. Obviously, I haven't looked at the story on that. It's very difficult to find the older story pieces. But, I again, you can tell that there's a change just just by looking at the art of the cards, looking at the subject matter and whatnot. So, I mean, it, it definitely tells a coherent tale of some kind. Obviously, again, since I haven't had a chance to read this, it I don't know exactly what that is, but the point is that I can definitely see this being a very self-contained block, I suppose, that um, had a lot of different things going for it. Wizards was definitely trying to find some new ground here, was using this as an opportunity to try out new keywords, and as we've discussed here before, most of them have not made it out. I suppose a few that have persisted, again, include Persist, include Evoke, and maybe <coughs> Wither, depending on if we want to look at that, and Champion as well, although, um, again, that's another very tribal-specific thing that doesn't see a whole ton of, uh, of use. So I, I think that really... The fact that most of the cards have been forgotten in these sets by a lot of players have definitely led this set to being, again, sort of forgotten amongst some of the other sets that came out around this. Is that fair? Uh, what do you what do you mean by that? Well, just the fact that we we as players know of some of the best cards from the set, and there's a lot of cards in this in these four sets that are very expensive now because they do very good things, but again. I think the block as a whole is kind of forgotten in its own way because it didn't have a whole ton of powerful cards. And it was also kind of a sandwich between Ravnica and Mirrodin, which, as I understand, were two extremely successful sets. So yeah. I think Lorwyn, Shadowmoor, Eventide is kind of forgotten in a way. Is 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 that fair compared to the other Haymaker sets that's, that basically bookended it? Yeah, so basically, you know, Time Spiral um, 
it also is a little obscure, but I think it has a big cult following because of some of the really unusual and weird stuff it did. And the fact that it's kind of like a gamer's set, it was as like the height of the weirdness of magic and, and an absolute, you know, blast to play with all kinds of unusual abilities. I don't, I feel like Lorwyn was a, a step back from that and, and they kind of returned to a lot more conventional set design. Uh, I think another thing that kind of works against Lorwyn, Shadowmoor is that Lorwyn and Shadowmoor are totally didn't work super well together at all. Um, you know, Lorwyn and Morningtide are both tribal-based, um, you know, uh, sets, whereas Shadowmoor and Eventide are not based around tribal strategies whatsoever. They have no cards that really play into that. They're pretty much entirely about color identity and color theme and um, utilizing some of the the new abilities that had been that had been keyword into um, into that you know like chroma or um, abilities that let you extract the most value out of having creatures of certain colors right and so they're not at all like each other they have the same tribes but they're they don't really work well um, and so that you end up with these two sets that are kind of like in parallel or but they don't really have a lot to do with each other. And so that's where you see that kind of dichotomy where you've got a lot of, there's a, a bunch of cards that are from those two sets, or at least a good number that people are very familiar with that are very powerful, very well known, and that people probably sometimes would be forgiven for forgetting that they're actually from the, the Lorwyn or Shadowmoor block. Um, because of how big they later became, uh, I'm thinking about you know cards like um, like Gilder Baron, um, Figure of Destiny, which has been reprinted a gajillion times. Um, you know uh, there was a couple other ones. A lot of the Elvish tribal cards were just uh, were pushed to a great extent. Like they're used all over the place. Um, and uh, same thing with a bunch of the Goblin cards. A lot of the fairy think... cards too. Yeah, oh, fairy. Well, yeah, tired, cards, uh, cards like uh, Bitter Blossom, Vendillion Click, um, you know, j just kind of going on down the list. But yeah, even, yeah, it just, there are a lot of cards that even I, as a player who didn't play back in these days, can recognize just by the names of. So well, there were a lot of yeah. good cards that came out of here. It's just the vast majority of the cards never really left the set. Yeah, and, and, you can look at Lorwyn and you can say categorically that that was the, the set of blocks that made fairies an actual supported tribe and made them a thing and not only made them supported but made them dominant in terms of standard at the time. Made them like the overwhelmingly dominant tribe and made them com highly competitive. And that's why there's so many cards that are fairy themed from those two uh, blocks that, that are like really powerful, like Thoughtseize, uh, like bitter, bitter blossom, like those very high level, high tier commander cards that came from that. Unfortunately, I think that overshadows everything else that was in the the sets. You know, I obviously Doran the Siege Tower is a big thing, but mm -hmm. can, not as many of the other tree folk are really remembered or really heavily utilized in you know today. Um, you know, the merfolk are really well utilized and, and people have that got a lot of support in the set, but 
Does anyone even realize that dwarves were a tribe in, in Lorwyn Shadowmoor? I think most people wouldn't even be aware of the fact that the Dowager were dwarves. Um, <laughs> like, they were, they had a very minor role, um, but ultimately forgettable. Um, I mean, most people wouldn't know what a puka was, but that was a tribe, like the dwarf, or the, the donkey people. Um, <laughs> like, that. like, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that no one remembers from, from the, those blocks. And then you add to that the reality that um, right after this, you had Shards of Alara, and everybody knows of Shards of Alara because Shards of Alara introduced the, the shards into the game. You know, like Esper and and Bant and all the other stuff, which are like, it's just keywords used by everyone all the time to describe color combinations. So, like, everybody knows about those cards. It, you know, and Alar introduced Cascade, and they introduced all those really cool, like, Esper cards and artifact strategies and um, strategies that revolved around creatures being a certain power or toughness, you know. Um, you really can't say as much about... Um, about Lorwyn Shadowmoor in terms of like lasting effect on the game. Like the most you can say in terms of their legacy was that many of the mechanics they introduced later ended up inspiring later mechanics, you know, improved mechanics that took advantage of their groundwork, but there wasn't a ton of stuff that ended up being carried forward from it. Um, and then to make things worse, right after Alara, then you also had, um, like you mentioned, the, uh, the Mirrodin block, which was huge at the time and totally like overshadowed Lorwyn Shadowmoor um, to the extent that that when people think about, you know, late 2000s, early 2010s, they think about, you know, the Mirrodin block or they think about um, Innistrad or whatever. Lorwyn Shadowmoor isn't what really comes to mind um, for most people. Mm-hmm. And is Going back and looking at these sets has actually been an interesting and eye-opening experience for me. Because, yes, well, I do play some of these cards. Again, the fact that I'm looking at these sets and really seeing where they fall under definitely gives me a new appreciation for the sets in general. Again, I do play some Clash cards. I have played Leisure too, But I was never really quite sure exactly where they came from what set they were originally from. So now that I've been able to go look back for this in preparation for this episode, I think it's given me a new appreciation for some of the older sets that people have nostalgia for, but that vastly predate my experience in this game. I think the other thing that's contributed to its lack of like popular awareness is that for the longest time, a lot of cards from Shadow Moor, Eventide, and even to a lesser extent like Morning Tide, they weren't reprinted like at all nor were those cards carried into other sets. Um, in fact, like most of the, a lot of the higher value cards became high value because they were so scarce. And even at this point in time, there's still cards that are worth quite a bit from, from that block that have never been reprinted. And it's now been over, over well over 10 years at this point. Um, not a single core set has reprinted them, not a single master set or anything. Um, it wasn't until very recently that the hybrid lands were actually reprinted, um, the filter lands, which is what contributed to them having like a ridiculously high price for a long time. And I think that hurt their popularity because, um, scarcity of, of those cards from the original printings, uh, 
I, I think it made them difficult for people to get their hands on, and I, and I think that resulted in people just not being aware of those cards in general, unless they were very competitive people in, in the Eternal formats who needed to have access to those cards. Um, I'm thinking about like Painter's Servant and stuff like that, mm-hmm. cards that are really well, uh, w- or were even better well-known in the day that I don't think actually are as well-known now because for the longest time they were ridiculously expensive to get your hands on them. Um, and so I, I think I think that, that that's contributed to, to a lot of its problems. Um, and I think it's a shame because it, there's a lot of lessons to be had from um, Lorwyn Shadowmore, and I thought that there was a lot that redeemed it. And that's not just because I'm biased, but also because there just is a lot of cool stuff in it. But, you know, most people only remember the big and successful things from, from those sets, and they don't quite remember all the other things that weren't quite as successful, but, you know, maybe had more of an impact on the game. Mm-hmm. And as you did mention earlier, some of these failed keyword abilities actually helped laid the groundwork for far more successful keywords later on. Yeah, and, and I, I that's the other perspective, is that th- there were a lot of keywords introduced during, during the blocks that um, were later reworked because they weren't successful, but they tried new things, and they uh, had enough interest from R&D to actually be used as the basis for other much better abilities. Like I, I point out uh, how Persist later became Undying, and I think Undying w- was a bigger thing than Persist ever kind of was. Sure. Um, I even, think it's the same. Yeah, even though, e- even though Persist did have some very good combo potentials, I'm thinking about things like Murderous Red Cap, for instance, which is a huge combo enabler because it has Persist. Because it doesn't matter if you have the negative one, negative one counter on there because there are ways to be able to remove that to then be able think, to go into yeah. it. Of course, Undying does too. Lot. They were used a lot in, in competitive play and, and by a certain segment of the player base, but I do think that they um, they never quite hit it off because they were very parasitic to their own set given that they revolved around negative one, negative one counters, as opposed to plus one, plus one counters, which there's, I think, a lot more stuff that kind of interacts with that in general on Magic, you know. Sure, sure. Um, But I look at the ability Chroma, and most people don't even remember what Chroma did, and that's because Chroma, um, I don't feel like it worked super-duper well. It It was a counting the mana symbols kind of thing, but unlike with what Devotion is, it wasn't usually found on static abilities. Chroma was found on cards like on sorceries and or on creatures that when they came into play, you know, were given certain things. Or uh, in this case, uh, you know, uh, like, oh, the power and toughness of this creature is equal to the number of mana symbols in its name, you know. I, there, that was later reworked a bit. Um, and and, and um, in uh, um, Devotion. In the Theros block. Yeah, in the Theros block, to where I think it was executed in a much cleaner um, manner. Um, You know, it... I think, um, like, if if you look at um, Devotion, the way it's worded, uh, you know, Devotion was better than that. It was like, Devotion to color, or Devotion to both colors, or Devotion to whatever, where, you know, Chroma was just like, here... 
what are the number of mana symbols in a given card and that, that and then you get something from that you know um you, you know rather than just the number of the color of mana symbols you know of all the permanents you own or something like that um okay it, it worked better it worked better in, in theros than it did um i think that uh wither for example, is another big one. Wither was the first time you saw creatures dealing damage in the form of negative one, negative one counters. I think Wither ultimately got overshadowed when they retweaked it and added it into Infect. Now, everyone is familiar with Infect. Not as many people run into Wither as frequently. Um, so I think that that's an example of another thing that kind of laid the groundwork for them combining poison counters with the effects of, of Wither, and then you got, you got Infect from that, you know, um, I, I think it, it kind of illustrates like that this, even though the set didn't go over quite as well, I think that it had a big influence on the game, you know? Mm-hmm. So ultimately I think we're going to wrap it up here is we've talked about the Shadowmore sets, uh, Lorwyn block, whatnot. And we've really been able to gain a new appreciation, I think, for this set. The fact that there was a lot of really cool stuff going on there, even if a lot of those things that were cool were just ahead of their time. So, again, Ryan, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. It's been great having you on here, as always. Yeah, thank you for uh, inviting me on as well. It's kind of nice to talk about something that, uh, you know, that I got a little bit of nostalgia for, you know. Sure, sure. And maybe some episode I'll talk more about War of the Spark in detail, and I'll be able to talk more about my introduction, my crucible into the game, so to speak. Yeah, it, it's a newer set, so more people probably remember it. <laughs> sure, sure. So so maybe we'll do that for a future Control Room episode. Yeah. All right. So uh, again, people can find me on Twitter at, at MTGNQuarantine. You can also find the back catalog of this podcast on Spotify, Google, Apple, MTGCastPodcast.com and a whole host of other podcast outlets. So for Ryan and myself, you've been listening to the MTG in Quarantine podcast. My name's MJ. Have a great rest of your day, everybody.